All right. Um, I, uh, I, I've got a picture. Can we show that picture I gave you earlier that somebody sent to me? Can you see that? <laughs> Parking available in empty spaces only? What problem is that sign solving? I can't imagine. Uh, and these things really bother me. The way my brain is worked, these things, and there's, there's got to be a sermon illustration in that. And for the life of me, I can't figure it out. So uh, if you can figure that one out, come and talk to me after the service, okay? Um, so, sermon, sermon title, Theological Pity Party. I can't figure out the cat either. You're going to have to explain that one to me later. Um, it's cute. Um, Angelina sent out uh, an email to the church. You probably saw it. And it said, uh, you are invited to a self-pity party. And someone who uh, fell and broke their leg a couple of days ago said, uh, emailed back and said, my pleasure. I'm so sorry. Um, and of course, it's uh, kind of kind of easy to get into a pity party these days, a self-pity party, uh, with the way the world is, right? And uh, it's an easy temptation, although in my experience, uh, usually my pity parties are party of one. And I have to work through it by myself. But let's, let's, let's explore theological self-pity party and what that might look like. Because I'm, I'm sure you know exactly what a pity party is for yourself. But what would be a theological self-pity party? Now, you might think the scripture uh, that uh, you read very well and got through all those words. Uh, proud of you. You did good. Um, you might think that I chose that scripture on purpose, uh, perhaps with some sort of agenda, but no, it's actually the assigned lectionary text for this particular Sunday. You might assume uh, that because the context of this story is that they are in the third year of a three-year drought. Hello? Hmm? Neither dew nor rain, it says earlier. Neither dew nor rain. No rain, no dew, and of course, for them, there's no H-E-B, just a couple of blocks south of Main Street, Jerusalem, right? There's no 18-wheeler coming in from California loaded with lettuce and carrots and fruit. There is for them no canned vegetables, no freeze-dried soup, no freezers with last year's deer meat still in it. A drought in the ancient world is not just a matter of inconvenience, as it is for us at times, although you ranchers and others, uh, this is a very significant and serious thing that you're having to go through. Me, I'm just worried about whether my St. Augustine grass in the front yard is going to make it. But for them, it's a matter of life and death. They, like us, cannot make it rain. So then... Who and what is going to deliver them from the catastrophe? Who and what is going to save them? 
Will it be Yahweh, the God of Israel? Maybe. Although our God doesn't seem to be around right now. Reflected in the psalm, right? Why have you forgotten us? Why have you forgotten me? Maybe the God of Israel, or maybe, maybe just to be sure, just to cover everything, maybe we should go down the street and say a prayer to Baal, the rain god. Or maybe go and make an offering to Asherah, the mother earth fertility goddess. Yahweh does not seem to be around, or maybe doesn't care. Again, that sentiment reflected in Psalm 42. Who and what is going to save us? What or who can give us the security, happiness, and protection that we long for? That, in my opinion, is the crux of this story. I was talking with some folks not too long ago. Uh, we, were, we were in a discussion about the idea of idolatry. Uh, a biblical understanding of idolatry uh, is not just admiring some inanimate object, right? It's not just, man, I really love my new sports car, okay? I really like this leather sofa. That's not the biblical understanding of idolatry. I would suggest that a biblical understanding is that idolatry is anything besides God that you think will ultimately save you. Anything that will give you the security and protection that you need. Like money, perhaps. A powerful military, perhaps. Guns. Our education. Your IQ. Your pension plan. So here's the litmus test to see where you really are with that, okay? Think of that thing that if you lost it, if you, what you have and if you lost it, what is that one thing that would give you the most worry, anxiety, consternation, sleepless nights? And that you would do almost anything to get it back, including being tempted to doing something unethical or immoral just to get it back. That's what you think is going to save you. Right? Now, believe me, I'm not trying to cast guilt or judgment on anyone. I can assure you that I struggle with these very things. Uh, in 2008, when the stock market crashed, I followed some bad advice and uh, lost a significant amount of savings, including pretty much uh, my inheritance from my mother and my dad. And through many sleepless nights, I had to work through my anger my anxiety. This time I'm trying real hard not to even think about the stock market, uh, which isn't easy because I'm older now and I'm closer to retirement. And the Methodist pension plan, the way it works is the payout you get is determined by uh, what the stock market is on the day you retire. Okay? <laughs> which, which is why there's so many Methodist pastors that feel called into retirement coincidentally when the stock market is very high, <laughs> right? I figure the way things are going now, I might have to work full-time until I'm 82. <laughs> but it is a culture and exactly this kind of struggle that Elijah finds himself. Who's going to save us? Who's going to give us our security? What's going to really protect us. And Elijah directly confronts that struggle 
God we trust, we say. The Israelites would say the same. But do you really, I think Elijah is basically challenging them on, do you really trust our God? Or do you really trust something else? Baal, Asherah, who are not really gods at all, Elijah basically argues. And if, even if they were real, they don't love you. I certainly would never die for you. I might love my pension, but my pension doesn't love me. Right? I might love my bank account and my property, but my bank account and my property doesn't love me, doesn't care about me at all. And it's not just can our God make it rain, but I think it's really more fundamental than that for Elijah. Are we going to choose this way of life that God offers us? A way of neighborliness? A way of compassion and peace and love for one another? A way of trust and respect for one another? In other words, a kind of way of life that would be the kind of world we would really want to live in. We take the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not worship any other gods, thou shalt not worship any idols, and then it lays out what that might look like. Well, we don't try to kill each other, we don't lie to each other, we don't steal from each other, we take care of our family. Are we going to choose and trust that somehow, even though it doesn't look like it on this exact day, that maybe God can pull this off and lead us into that way of life? In our culture, I think this story translates into a choice between a life living God's way or secularism. Secularism is basically uh, good luck because you're on your own. In the previous chapter, Elijah gets into a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And he wins the showdown, but now Jezebel, that Baal-worshipping Phoenician princess who's married to, to the Israelite king Ahab, is furious and is out to kill Elijah. He won the battle, but he's about to lose the war, you might say. And so Elijah runs away. And who can blame him? He tried to change the world and failed. The world became even more violent, dangerous, idolatrous, and unbelieving than when he started. You can't change the world, right? Elijah's burned out. He's been rejected. He's failed. And so he cashes out runs away, tries to escape. He travels south to Beersheba. Beersheba is kind of the Brownsville of Israel. You know, once you get to Brownsville, there ain't no more Texas left. Right? Once you get to Beersheba, there's no, there's no more Israel left. And he keeps going out into the Sinai Desert. Keeps going. And he, and he prays that he might die. Sometimes we have to slow down and just think about these things. He prays that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than anyone else. That sounds like a pity party. He keeps going. And he's in the midst of this understandable self-pity party. But it's not just a self-pity party. It's a theological pity party. I would say that either he's struggling with Messiah complex, that he somehow thinks that the future of everything is all dependent on him, or maybe he's just given up. 
given up on God, either God is not around or doesn't care, or just can't fix it. But the angels keep feeding him along the way. And when he gets to Mount Horeb, God speaks to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Another sentence that you slow down on. And maybe it's the way you say it. What are you doing here, Elijah? Or what are you doing here, Elijah? And we all want God to speak to us, right? Be careful. (laughs) What are you doing, Lumpkin? Well, some really cool video games on my iPhone. What are you doing? What are you doing here? I'm the only one left, Elijah says. And then in this tremendous wind, the earthquake, the fire, and then the quiet, God speaks again. Same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Again, the pity party, the same answer. I'm the only one left. Go back the way you came, says the Lord God. Go back the way you came. I have things for you to do. And oh, by the way, there's still 7,000 of you. Pity party is officially over. In this story, and again, I'm, I'm talking about three chapters here, not just the text that was read to you. There are three things going on. Nurture. He thinks he's all alone. He thinks he's failed. He's ready to to quit, and God still keeps taking care of him. When you think you're alone, God's still taking care of you. Second thing is presence. God is present. God lets him know that he is doing something, that there is a plan, that God is working something out even though it's not apparent to Elijah. And then third is commission. Commissions, recommissions, Elijah. I'm doing something. There's a plan, and I still need you to be a part of that plan. What are you doing here? Now go back the way you came. Return to the struggle. Pity party is over. It is a difficult, challenging violent time that we live in as well, is it not? Valley, Buffalo, New York, now a church in Alabama, drought, COVID, Ukraine, and my pension, (laughs) this disappearing hutch. It's tempting, isn't it, to run away, our own versions of running away, Or like Elijah, think maybe that the only thing left to do is self-preservation. The world is the way it is, and there's nothing we can do about it. Or is it? Is God doing something about it? And how would we know? And what would it look like? I got a phone call this week. Um, A young man in... Joel's youth group that went on the UM Army trip. Uh, 
what I've heard secondhand is uh, struggles, uh, maybe some bullying. They say a lot of these shooters, they've been bullied and they're isolated. He said, I want to be baptized. Joel, good work, Joel. What would it look like? I think maybe the church needs to toss out that word volunteer. We, don't, we need to ban that word. We, we need a different word. I can't find that word in my Bible. Maybe, maybe a more old-fashioned word like witness. Uh, the Bible actually uses family talk, brother, sister, father, mother. They had dysfunctional families back then, just like now. And they needed a different kind of family. You're my brother. You're not a parishioner. You're not a volunteer. You're my sister, my brother, my father. Maybe baptized. Maybe I just need to say, Joel needs a couple of baptized people to step up. Because there's a kid that feels isolated and bullied. God sent us, sent him to us, and is asking us to step up with repentance, humility, listening prayer, and everything that we need for this journey. This journey being a witness, Christ, love, compassion for this generation that's walking through our door. God bless them. Chandler, I believe you're going to come and say a word of prayer for us. As he's coming forward, I'm going to share you uh, a song. Lyrics. I thought... I thought number one would surely be me. I thought I could be what I wanted to be. I thought I could build on life's sinking sand, but now I can't even walk without you holding my hand. I thought I could do a lot on my own. I thought I could make it all day long. I thought of myself as a mighty big person, a mighty big man. But Lord, I can't even walk without you holding my hand. The mountain's too high and the valley's too wide. Down on my knees, that's where I learned to stand. Oh, Lord, I can't even walk without you holding my hand.